You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Halito, Chema Chukma. I'm excited about today's episode talking about the Bible and Native American spirituality. It felt special to get to talk with Chris Haklutube, Assistant Professor of Religion at Cornell College, because in addition to being a scholar, he's also Choctaw, just like me. And Chris and I have been able to connect over the past year or so around Native interpretations of the Bible and how proud we are to be Choctaw, but also how much work we see that can be done in the area of Native American interpretation of Scripture. So, it was a lot of fun to bring you all into the conversation. But before we jump in with Chris, I wanted to let you all know, primarily pastors, that we have a new Pastors for Normal People course coming up. We had over 200 pastors join in our course in the spring, so we've been hard at work dreaming up ways to support pastors as they try to navigate their own faith shifts as well as their congregation, often without a lot of other support. This course is called Preaching Salvation Beyond Penal Substitutionary Atonement, or Preaching Salvation Beyond PSA, if you know, you know. And it's just in time for Easter. The live version will be on Thursdays from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on March 17th, 24th, 31st, and April 7th. You can always watch them later if you can't get there live, and it's pay what you can. We know that pastors are often on a budget, so it's truly pay whatever you can. Just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash beyond PSA to sign up. Now, on to today's episode. What you think is a natural or an obvious reading of the text is actually not natural or obvious. You just haven't questioned your own perspective or the perspective of the church that you've been raised in. When Jesus says, give up your riches, give up what you possess, there is the implication is, give up your land back to the people who you unwrongfully took it from, right? Or through injustice took it through. Chris, if you'd introduce yourself to our listeners briefly, how you got interested in what you're doing. So, my name is uh, Thomas Christopher Hoklutubi, but... That's how I pronounce it. I recently made a visit to Oklahoma for my research, and I introduced myself to friends there. And, you know, they they looked at me like, not look, <laughs> they, they heard my name like, what is that? I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, Hawkla Tubby. And I, I've tried to resist this pronunciation because it invites Teletubby. Yes, and, of course. Yeah, that's the yes, first thing I, I thought of. Tubby is a traditional suffix for the Choctaw and Chickasaw people. Um, there, there's a Tubby chief among the Chickasaw right now. I'll, I'll probably circle back to this, but Hoklo Tubby means uh, he who listens to kill. I don't usually have a good follow-up to that. I yeah, like where do you go with that now? I know. It's, I, I listen to my students' arguments so that I can deconstruct them. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, or, or I listen well. This is how I think about my present research. I am listening well to my elders and to others so that I might kill white supremacists, Christian interpretations of the Bible to provide life for all. That's my... Well, that's, that's all we have time for today, Chris. <laughs> there we go, friends. Thanks go, for... Uh... Thanks for the name. <laughs> but so I come from an evangelical background in Southern California. I was not raised in Oklahoma. My grandfather, Eddie Hoklatubby, came from Oklahoma, almost in a cliche story where his, his own father was an alcoholic war veteran. And um, when his parents divorced, he moved with his mother to Southern California. So that's how... This branch of the Hoklatubbies moved to Southern California. Um, I wasn't raised in an indigenous context, 
But this was something that my family had always told stories about and was important to us. And, uh, you know, I went to undergraduate at UCLA wanting to, you know, zealously uh, preach the gospel to non-Christians in a secular college. And part of that zeal made me interested in historical Jesus studies and applying to Harvard Divinity School, which uh, Pete and I share, right? A Harvard connection. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got in, I, you know, Scott Barchi and the UCLA Religion Department had done a number of my theology where I was becoming more progressive. And all those liberal Christians who were destroying the faith ended up just, you know, in my mind, who I was going there to to uh, uh, disprove were just, you know, Episcopalians right. and Lutherans, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so let, why don't we jump into some of this then, Chris? Around when we say Native American interpretations of Scripture, could you just drill down and say, like, what? Do, what? Whenever we say that, what do we mean? What are we talking about when we talk about? Native American interpretations of Scripture. Yeah. So, what I would say is what's distinct about a Native American interpretation is an attempt to make the Bible meaningful to the experiences, traditions, and struggles of Native Americans in such a way that recognizes the inherent worth and dignity of their heritage and lives. So, a Native American interpretation of the Bible starts with the assumption that the creator God of Israel, who revealed his God self to Moses, had not simply ignored the indigenous peoples of North America until the arrival of the Spanish and French missionaries, right? Like, what horrible introductions to the Bible if we're thinking that, like, the Spanish and French and later English colonial preachers were the ones to bring us the Bible, right? Or or not to bring us the Bible, to bring us God's presence. And so, if... We start with the assumption that the creator had long been present and had made its God self's mark upon the stories and rituals, land and life ways of indigenous peoples. How might this open us up to think about what the Bible means for us today and how God has spoken to us in the past or, or as Stephen Charleston talks about, how we can bring our native covenant into conversation with the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the New Covenant that's, that, that, that is in with the revelation of Jesus. So, from what I have been looking at through books and through conversations with elders and leaders, right, there's a number of things or, or moves that I might categorize as things that Native Americans do when they read the Bible from an indigenous lens. Yeah, that's great. Let's jump into this. Let's jump. So, one might be is that Native Americans, indigenous folk, First Nations, right? There's a number of names we call ourselves, right? Incorporate important stories, figures, values, and concepts that are our home within our tribes and our heritage into our interpretation of the Bible, right? So, applying our own frameworks and categories to thinking about how we make sense of the Bible. And this is something everyone does, right? Because, again, and this is what you all have covered way in depth, and I'm not going to talk about this, right? Is that everyone always fills in the gaps with their own culture when we read these biblical texts. These biblical texts were not written to us. They were not written in our time period, right? These are uh, uh, for the New Testament texts, right? These are written in the first and second century in the ancient Mediterranean world. This world is very much unlike the world we live in in modern America or Canada, right? And so we are, to, to make sense of the social dynamics or what's at stake in these texts, we're always in some sense projecting what we know to these texts to make sense of what's ambiguous. And there's a lot more ambiguous 
concepts, social dynamics, concerns that are in these texts than I think a lot of evangelicals would like to admit. A lot more than I would like to admit or would have liked to admit as if I'm speaking back to college freshman Chris. So we can think about categories or figures like trickster or vision quest, this conviction that, that, that the land is sacred. Uh, Jace Weaver and Stephen Charleston have written extensively on how the idea of the trickster in a number of indigenous tribes is helpful for thinking about not just, you know, Jacob, which is usually, you know, the low hanging fruit when you think about tricksters. Um, it, and Pete, you could wax more on this than I can, right? The way in which Jacob is being shady and shifty in the ways in which he is gaining his blessing from Esau, right? And he goes and tricks his future father-in-law, right? To get a bunch of sheep, right? And but 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 also how this this the concept of a trickster is actually maybe helpful for thinking about John and Jesus themselves. So let me back up. So in the it, there are a number of trickster stories in a number of indigenous traditions. We think about raven, we think about coyote, we think about spider for the uh, Lakota tribes. And, you know, I, I'm speaking broadly, almost in a pan-Indian way, but I also want to be sensitive to the way in which, you know, there, there's like over 530 tribes, right? And each of these tribes have their own distinct cultures and stories and heritage, right? And so we do disservice when we talk about indigenous culture as one kind of static thing. But there's a way in which a lot of our indigenous stories have a lot of resonances to other indigenous stories that we we can see some broad patterns. And for a context like this, it's helpful to kind of paint with broad brushstrokes. But the trickster also has, we could think about sacred clowns in the Hopi traditions and the Lakota traditions, the uh, Hakoya, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mispronouncing that. For the, 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 the sacred clowns, um, along with the tricksters, right, they're bounty crossers. Right, they destabilize what we expect, what is habitual. They make fun of our lives. They oftentimes get themselves into trouble, right? And, and a lot of cultures have these kind of trickster figures, whether it's we're thinking about Norse mythology and we think about Loki, right? Or, gosh, I'm even thinking about my daughter watching Hotel Transylvania, Transformania, right? Where the uh, Johnny is almost this trickster figure. He's this like naive kid who just, you know, wants everyone love each other, but he is just getting into all kinds of troubles. And it's funny to watch all the troubles he gets into, right? But his boundary crossing between monster and human, right, is providing new insight into what it means to be community to one another. And in a lot of different trickster stories, right, between uh, whether it's raccoon or coyote, right, they are getting into mischief, but as a result of the mischief and the chaos that they are creating, right, we learn something about why the world is ordered in the way that it is, or we learn to question the status quo. And as uh, Stephen Charleston writes about, the people who are challenging the, the status quo are those that live on that liminal space between order and chaos that, that, that usually challenges the status quo come from the outside. And that is that John the Baptist who's coming from the desert, dressed in camel skin, right? And, and eating locusts and just troubling the waters by preaching this end time apocalyptic message that, 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 that God's wrath and justice is going to come and everyone needs to repent. The stark contrast that he represented in his ministry to, to the daily Galilean that was just living their lives. And, 
And in some ways, John provides a contrast to the historical Jesus insofar as if, if, if John was this apocalyptic prophet who expected the end of the world, and and I would categorize Jesus as expecting the end of the world too, but right, that, 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 that this God is going to be a God of kicking butt and taking names and you know, the axe is at the winnowing tree. Jesus is one who is healing the blind and uh, sitting down with the lost and the last and the least and not really bringing the axe to the Roman Empire, such that then John even is questioning him and saying, are, are you the real Messiah? Are you are you there? And and both Jesus and John are, are troubling our expectations for what the Messiah should be, or if, if John sets the, the backdrop to what maybe some expectations for the Messiah should be, then, then Jesus is troubling it. So, so, Chris, I think what I'm getting from this is that the, the trickster theme in the Native American experience, generally speaking, is valued and maybe even somewhat a staple, even prominent? Is that is that an overstatement? It's prominent for a number of tribes. Prominent for a number of tribes, and but it's not prominent for white people in the West. No. Right. So we're but we're seeing, in other words, looking at some stories where the trickster is rather obvious, like the Jacob story, but looking at those stories to value let's say, to value the Native American experience, or for those who have that experience, of, of the prominence of the trickster theme. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. I, never th- I, never, I never heard the term until I was doing my doctoral work. Yeah. And I went to seminary. I never heard this. Let me put it this way. It's, it's not a category that the West plays with a whole lot, right? It's not something that's at hand for us. But it's there. It's there. And why don't they do it? Because it's not at hand. It's not it's not part of our discourse. It's not a part of a way in which we group things together or pattern things together, right? Because that's not our culture. It might right? be it's we don't want to be troubled, right? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we're, we're we're in power. Mm-hmm. Right? So and and the tricksters are for people who don't have the power and they're trying to get some. So I don't know. That's just me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes I wonder, some of these trickster stories, right? They're just fun stories. They're silly stories, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And there's not really a point. And that's, that's a fun part, but I love these stories, right? Whether there, There's this Chocta story that, that gets classified as a trickster story, right? Where uh, how rabbit loses its tail. And so one telling of it is, right, rabbit is kind of lazy and sees coyote or fox with a bunch of fish and... The rabbit's like, hey, how can I get as much fish as you do? And the fox tells the rabbit, hey, you know, if you put your tail into the frozen lake, you're going to catch a ton, a ton of fish. And at this point in the story, right, rabbit has a long tail, long tail. And so the fox convinces the rabbit, hey, you know, go do this. So the rabbit just says, hey, why not? Puts its tail into the freezing water. And just sits there waiting to collect fish. And after a while, it gets really cold and he finds that his butt is frozen to the lake. And so as he pulls and pulls his butt off out of the the frozen lake, he finally frees himself, but finds that he no longer has a long tail. As a result, this is why rabbits have short tails. So this gets classified as, you know, an origin story for why rabbits have short tails, but it's also a trickster's tale. What's the moral of this story? I've seen various retellings of it that have gone as far as to, to quote Bible morality out of it. There's, there's this cute 
Christianized book you can get at the Choctaw gift store that talks about the Christian principles out of this. But in one retelling, right, it's it's that the rabbit talks too much and this is why you should shut up and not be lazy and, you know, <laughs> be wise and thoughtful before you just run into things. But that's the beauty of these stories, right? The oral tradition, right? There's this kind of general story and we have different means we apply to it. This is a great jumping off point to another way in which Native Americans are approaching these texts, right? We have these particular frameworks that come from our own traditions, and we can use these to apply to think about how the, how we should interpret the Bible, how ancients interpret the Bible, right? So I just talked about these ancient oral traditions where you have these stories and multiple people are kind of making their own meaning of it. But isn't this also how we receive the gospel messages, right? Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John well, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right, tell the same story, but sometimes are doing their own spin to it. And, you know, the historical critical person in me wants to be like, well, what's the original saying? What's the original meaning of these texts? And sometimes they have multiple meanings, right? Sometimes the, we may have lost the meaning in some ways, but what we have is Matthew's readings or Luke's readings or John's reading of a, a, a particular thing. And that, that that's okay, and that's to live in that ambivalence is actually quite beautiful and fine. Is that would you would you say, Chris? Then just to kind of tie that together, there's a connection to allowing from from a from a Native American standpoint, and that it's actually one of the things that's it's frustrating when I read Choctaw stories because of my expectations of stories, where there is often not it's it's not an Aesop fable sort of way of reading a story where it's like, and here's the point. And I, I just wonder if if part of that, if a native understanding or context wouldn't go looking for that all the time, but it's actually valuing the story for its ambiguity and it's valuing the story for the multiple contexts in which it could apply. And I wonder if that's part of this native in, way of, of interpreting scripture. Yes, absolutely. And this is what I've heard from my elders and Nates. And I think this is really true of... Just how humans learn, right? I think about this, how I teach my students, right? I try to give them problems and I look for them to solve the problem themselves. If, 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 if I give you the answer, you might remember it, but you'll forget about it. But you will remember the answer that you figure out for yourself, right? This is just how humans work. And so I think there's a real beauty of not some genius to these open-ended stories where we have to figure out what the meaning is. Because we're going to remember and sit with and be formed by the the meanings that we co-create with the Spirit in these stories and the ones that are just given to us. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. That's actually, I want to maybe talk about that a little bit because I think we, again, kind of from a Western standpoint, the assumption is, well, what's the point of this morally? And there's something to the value of stories as stories. To Not that there's no... Because I, I think from that historical critical standpoint, there's a sense of saying, no, you're missing the point. There is no moral to the story. There is just the story. 
But I, what I hear, and, and this is what I would say just from, again, my kind of Choctaw tradition, letting it inform how I read the scriptures, sometimes it's more just that there's wisdom that's gained from wrestling with it. It's not that there's no moral point, it's that the moral point comes when I bring my story to it, or when I bring my situation to it. And sometimes, I feel like in the West, it's like discounted. Like, well, that doesn't really count, because we want to know what the real like moral to the story is. I mean, that's Hans yeah. Frey, you know, right. the, the eclipse of biblical narrative where it's always about, well, you know, what happened, but you're losing the beauty of the story, which just stands on its own in this ambiguity. Right. You know, it just stands on its own. And that's the point. And in the West, we're not used to that. Right. <laughs> it's got to have a moral. It's got to have a reason. It's got to have an Aesop's fable thing at the yeah, end of and it. And that, that's that point that we make fits into this larger moral framework that makes sense of everything, and everything has a place, and we need to know where this story fits in the larger order of things. And it's what God wants. Right, yeah, and then we baptize it as though this is sort of God's order of things. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of stories that we're just trying to figure out what the heck do they mean. And and so, one example that's especially prominent, and I've seen some really great readings from Mitzi Smith and others from an African-American perspective, right, on the the story of the Syrophoenician woman, right, where – Jesus is trying to take a vacation. He's trying to take a break and he goes into an inn and this woman who's not even Jewish comes up to him and says, Hey, can you, you, you heal my daughter? And he's like, gosh, I'm so tired. Right? Like, no, <laughs> this is not the Jesus we usually accomplish. Oh, again. Oh gosh. I just want to watch TV. I don't want to do that. Right. And uh, he's like, I look, I came for the children of Israel, right? Like, do I give the bread that's meant for the children of Israel to the dogs? And the serial Phoenician woman says, well, look, even the dog, get crumbs at the table and you know depending on your reading of matthew or mark right i, I forget i think it's mark uh, that says you know it's well it's by your word that you're healed then and you know mitzi smith from african-american woman's perspective has this wonderful book called woman assassin talk back and she takes us as a a story to say look this woman talks back to jesus she sasses jesus and she gets the healing for her daughter from her word, right? That's a beautiful way in which she's bringing a concept or a, an experience from an African-American woman's perspective to read this text. I also wonder, too, if from a Native American lens, right, we could also reshape this from a the holy clown or the sacred clown, the sacred fool, right, who, who asks silly questions, right, who's okay to be the butt of the joke, but, but at the end of the day, some truth is revealed, right? That, that Jesus is big enough to be the wrong person or to say the wrong thing in this situation to re-put the spotlight on the agency of the serial Phoenician woman to, to, to validate and underline that no salvation also comes to her, not just to the Jews. And I, I think that the, the, the trickster concept or the trickster paradigm or the holy uh, fool paradigm, right. Allows us maybe to, to see Jesus in a different kind of pattern, right. Not ask, these kind of like philosophical questions of can Jesus being all knowing and law loving say something incredibly racist or wrong, right? Or is he wrong, right? Like maybe this is a performance or maybe he is taking on this, this role, the sacred fool who says stupid things uh, that are incredibly mean, but to, to elicit this new revelation from the audience, right? I would say I've talked about trickster, man, but man, you know, one of the other things that I think Stephen Charleston has really inspired me to think about is the way in which vision quests that that are true at home for a lot of Plains Indians, especially the Lakota traditions, right, are really at home within the biblical tradition, and especially within even the life of Jesus, right? So when we see Jesus 
going off and spending 40 days in the wilderness, right? Like from Western perspective, we just think, oh, well, he's just going there and doing his seminary lessons maybe, or, or just whatever he's doing. We don't have a real concept that we, we speed read through that part and get to the real juicy part of his ministry. But from an indigenous land, we look at this as like, this dude's going out to nature for 40 days. What is he doing? Right. Maybe it's a vision quest. Maybe the, he, he's getting some revelation from uh, uh, the divine, the angels, um, or even, as, as I would argue, right, he's maybe learning something from creation. And this, this is the second part of what I see indigenous people doing in interpretations of the Bible is taking their values and their ways and experience of thinking about the divine and projecting that back on the Bible to make sense of it. You know, if we take Luke seriously, that Jesus grew in wisdom, that, that, that Jesus didn't come out of the womb knowing every secret of the cosmos, right? And he even yeah. says, even, even the Son of Man doesn't know when the end time is coming. Well, I mean, he didn't die that way either. Right. He never got that, uh, right? So, What if we actually imagine Jesus learned stuff? Yeah. And the question is, how did he learn things? And so, what if in those 40 days, he wasn't just sitting there meditating or zoning out or fast playing, you know, fast forwarding his time period, but was sitting there and watching nature and learning from nature? What if nature was a vehicle for God's revelation to Jesus or God's instruction to Jesus as he watched the snakes, or as he watched the native birds of Israel there, or the uh, the, the grazing deer that, that or antelope that, that go through there, it's it's a whole paradigm shift. Yeah. And well, he and did I have see- his parables, right? With that are all many of them are nature based, right? Right. Well, it reshapes how you think about that, right? Like right, like, exactly, right. Yeah. Not to, oh, those are nice stories, but why mm-hmm. tell those stories, and why do we not hear them in church? Well, not also not only why tell those stories, but where did he formulate the connections between the kingdom of God right. and the things of nature? Yeah, right. And that kind of tying to what you're saying, Chris, like maybe he spent time contemplating and thinking and learning through the ways in which creation works. Yeah. Maybe he spent time amongst flowers and said, man, they, these are beautifully clothed. Like, yeah. think about the vanity of the, this world, all the, the effort we are spending to, to, to buy and purchase and consume things that will make us look beautiful. And these plants do nothing. They do nothing. And they are beautiful, more beautiful than Solomon, right? So, we can come at this in one ways, either we, or two ways. We can think about this as Jesus said, thinking to himself, man, humans are really stupid. How do I talk to them as babies? Okay, here are flowers. They like flowers. <laughs> Let me tell yeah. them a flower story, right? Or we might think of Jesus in his humanity, in his learning, thinking and maybe processing and, and spending time with flowers and learning something from flowers and then applying that to his imagination of what God's kingdom is like. Or it's more, it's, it's, it's uh, another sort of option, which is maybe a variation on your first is, here's a really neat sermon illustration. Right. I found it in a magazine or something. Rather than a deep connection with the created order, so to speak, and learning something about God, about life, about faith from the natural world. It's like Psalm 19, almost like, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, that kind of thing. It's, you learn things from looking at nature. And boy, talk about something, Jared, that's lost in the West. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't have any time for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not at all. And, and if we project on that Jesus, how does that then project back to us for mm-hmm. how we think about how we might connect with the divine, right? Uh, this is a plug for Randy Woodley's 
becoming rooted, right? 100 days following him and his new book, thinking about how can we become rooted to ourselves, rooted to the divine by spending some time in nature. One of the stories I really appreciate, a part of my research is I've been attending an online church called The Good Medicine Way, led by Casey Church. Uh, it's an indigenous church, and, and part of their liturgical structure, let's call it, is they have time for giving testimony and, and telling stories about what they've learned from creation that week. And so usually they'll have one member of their community come and talk about how she was looking out in her garden and saw a frog jumping and being chased by a larger raptor, a larger maybe eagle uh, or hawk. And it was jumping from left to right, left to right. And, and she was watching this frog's movement and she's thinking about her own life and how, you know, she would prefer an easy straight life. But what she feels like in her life right now is that her life is going back and forth, back and forth. You know, and this is just one small thing, but it really opens up this larger world of meaning. If everything around us is a potential parable, is an potential embodiment and vehicle for divine revelation, for thinking about our own own lives. If we only just went outside and watched and looked. That made me think, Chris, is there, and I don't know the answer to this, it's just a a curiosity, is there an emphasis within Native American interpretation on a focus on the natural environments and and what's happening in, in nature in these narratives and texts where we might center nature? And creation and the things around us, the the plants and animals, and not just the people. Man, so 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 two stories I want to tell. One is from Jared, you and I, uh, uh, Choctaw Cultural Center, right? So if you go to our cultural center, what I think is really neat, you'll see a bunch of diamonds throughout the cultural center, right? And these cult, and these diamonds are meant to represent the rattlesnake and the importance of the rattlesnake to our Choctaw tribe. And uh, according to tradition, right, the rattlesnake taught the Choctaw some really important lessons, two lessons in particular, right? So one is that the rattlesnake rattles its tail before a stupid human walks by it, right? It says, hey, don't step on me, otherwise I'm going to bite you. But by watching this and thinking about this, the Choctaw thought about, you know, we really ought not to just wantonly run into warfare, right? That we ought to warn people that we are dangerous or that we are not to be tread upon. And there's this wonderful story in in our tradition where early contact times as French ships were going around to the Mississippi coast where our tribe originally was before we relocated to Oklahoma, um, a ship was about to port in a Choctaw territory area. And you had all these Choctaw lined up in a huge row, right? All these tubbies, all these warriors lined up doing the rattlesnake stomp dance. Now, one's not very intimidating, but you have a line of hundreds of Choctaw doing a rattlesnake uh, stomp dance, right? That ship's going to turn away. And that ship did turn away, not wanting to mess with the Choctaw. But second, right, they learn from the rattlesnake that oftentimes when it bites, it risks breaking its fangs and thus its own livelihood, its own survival. And this taught the Choctaw that we need to be thoughtful before we go to warfare, right? Anytime we go to fight, right, we are risking the lives of our own people. And so we ought to always seek peace before warfare. You know, these seem rather banal, but these are really meaningful and huge for communities that are trying to live together, right? I mean, we're still trying to figure out how to live peacefully with one another. And how do we bring this to the text? How do we bring this kind of reading to the text? You know, 
again, I, I think about what did Jesus learn from creation, right? I think about the parables that of the flowers of the field. I think about the birds of the air, right? His watching the birds and thinking about what the, what that, that that shows and that God, that God cares for the even the least of these. Jesus watching how farming agriculture is done, right? And how, how plants grow, the mustard seed grows into this beautiful bush, right? That the, that the world is suffuse, is full of parables and secrets of the kingdom of God. If only you just sit there and look. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Uh, I also looked at Romans 8, right, which is arguably the climax of Paul's argument where he's thinking about, man, what is the what is the sorry state that we're in as human beings that we know the things that we ought to do, but we can't do them. The law tells us all these ethical principles to do, and the 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 flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. God help us, but thank goodness for the Holy Spirit that's going to help give us that energy, that motivation to do it. But as he's wrapping up his argument for why we need Jesus and why the law itself isn't good enough to make us righteous before God, he has this grand vision of the end, and he talks about how creation itself is is moaning with us, right? That it the Christian creation itself is in birth pains, waiting for the culmination of time where everything is going to be restored. And that in, in, in some way, right, create, uh, he talks about how creation didn't get this self by its get into this trouble by itself, that we we did this to creation. And creation is here with us moaning for the its restoration, for peace, for the coming of the kingdom of God. And Paul talks about creation as a non-human person, right? A non-human person. This is how indigenous people think about animals and lands and bushes and trees, right? They, they may not be human in the way we're human, right? Uh, but they are, they are persons nonetheless, that they are in solidarity with us. They are in, they are waiting for us. And, and, and if creation is waiting with birth pangs uh, uh, for this coming end, right? It is a uh, uh, it is something that we are an ally to that we should be concerned about and care about up until the end, right? We're in this together, is what I get from Romans eight from an indigenous perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, and as we as we wrap up our time here, Chris, I'm curious for for those who aren't Native American and they don't have that bring that perspective. What's What's a way to incorporate or be sensitive to that perspective as as they go and read their own Bibles? Is there anything else? You know, we talked about the ambiguity of story as something to learn from Native American interpretation and and the the environment, nature, and thinking through how creation might be revelation uh, to us. But is there anything else that you would leave us with? Oh gosh, um, you know, what, one more story here, I guess, if, if you don't mind. That, that that's kind of on my heart. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine from the evangelical tradition about what I'm doing here. And he was really skeptical about like, well, what is an indigenous interpretation of the Bible? Like, how is this meaningful to us? And how are you not just projecting things to it? And 
And one of the ways in which I wanted to, you know, share with my friend about this is like, well, let me give you an example, right? So I think Indigenous Lens, with its concerns for justice, with its concerns for maybe reparations or thinking about the land, right, it actually helps us to see things that are already there. So uh, one example might be going to Matthew 19, Mark 10, or Luke 18, right, the story of the rich young ruler, Right. So Jesus sees this rich young man who is walking down the road and he's asking Jesus, well, what do I have to do to attain the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know, have you followed all the Torah? Have you done everything? He's like, yes, yes, yes. You know, I've, I've, I'm following the Decalogue perfectly. And Jesus responds back, well, then just sell your possessions and give everything to the poor. And the guy is dumbfounded and walks away. He can't do it. And then Jesus says, well, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And one indigenous interpretation uh, from Ted Myers, who is not indigenous himself, but works with indigenous Chumash in California, has put forward is that, you know, what was Jesus asking him when he said, give up all your rich possessions, right? How did this rich man become rich? And if you look at you know, the ancient world, a lot of wealth was accumulated by giving, you know, high interest rate loans to poor farmers. And when they couldn't pay that back, you would take their land. And so if we assume that this rich person was rich, by the way, which most people were rich in the Galilean agriculture area, that is through the accumulation of land through horrible loans that oppress the poor, When Jesus says, give up your riches, give up what you possess, there is the implication is give up your land back to the people who you unwrongfully took it from, right? Or through injustice took it through. And this was deeply sad. This is nonetheless good news, right? For indigenous people who are reading through this lens, I think, yeah, Jesus does care about the awful treaties uh, that were written to Native Americans or or the treaties that were okay, but have not been followed through on by the United States. Uh, and, and so I told the story to my friend and he said, well, that's not what it's about. It's, it, it's about idolatry. It's about putting anything before God is going to be bad for you. And I said, that's funny because the word idolatry doesn't show up in here, right? <laughs> right. I mean, if, if I was mean, I might say this is kind of a white middle-class reading, is it not? Because you're putting the poor and the rich on the same plane. Jesus Jesus is not saying, don't put anything before God. He, th- this is a command to say, hey, if you're rich, you better redistribute your wealth to the poor, right? The poor are not being criticized here. So what you think is a natural or an obvious reading of the text is actually not natural or obvious, right? You just haven't questioned your own perspective or the perspective of the church that you've been raised in, right? And I think it's in, inherent in every reading, right, that we are always looking for where God's going to bless us or where we're the good guys, right? But God forbid that we're the bad guys, right? I mean, indigenous reading of Exodus, the liberation story of God setting the people free from Egypt uh, is a wonderful story that is the heart of liberation theology for African Americans and, and Latinx readings, right? But what happens next in chapter two? I mean, in part two, right? They go to the promised land and they kill themselves a bunch of Indians, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where are we supposed to see ourselves in this text? Uh, and this is something that Robert Warrior has written on is that 
man, we're the Canaanites, right? Are, are, we, are we not? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how can we imagine a peaceful coexistence, a, a kingdom of God that can respect Canaanites and, and, and Jewish people living together, right? Um, do not Canaanites or the people of, uh, of the land have something to contribute? And, and my last point then in indigenous reading, right, we can maybe come back to Abraham, right? The Abraham story, which has some lost threads that are not followed upon. I think about Melchizedek, right? Who is not a part of the Jewish, I mean, he's part of the Jewish story, right? But he, he's not part of Abraham's kin. And he blesses Abraham and says, you know, the God most high is, you know, is, you know, blesses, you know, is praying to the God most high. And then, and Pete, you know better than I on this, right? But this is not, this phrase, God most high is first introduced by Melchizedek. And then Abraham takes this name for God and makes an oath about it saying, no, I swear by this God, right? Like, there, there is kind of an open pluralistic covenant that Abraham is is playing with because he recognizes that Melchizedek in his indigenous identity, right, knows the same God that he does and may know something that he doesn't know, but is certainly going to accept that blessing from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. You know, I was thinking too, Chris, as we just closed down here that you mentioned, you know, who are the Native Americans in the story of the conquest and... You know, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark is a Canaanite woman in Matthew. Mm-hmm. And I always found that to be rather striking because, I mean, in my, I, I, you know, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm pretty convinced it is, but I don't think there were Canaanites running around in Jesus's day. I think it's highly symbolic of maybe a corrective course on that old animosity. So, you know, in the trajectory of the biblical story, there is a redemptive way, let's say, of including oppressed peoples in that story, because you're absolutely right, in America, Native Americans were the Canaanites, and they were, you know, slaughtered or imprisoned, or because they didn't, they weren't valued. They were just the bad people who worshiped the wrong gods. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just a, a dose of New Testament helps sometimes, right? So <laughs> Every once in a while. Every once in a while. Not often. Yeah. You know, you kept on asking in other interviews, well, how does this get back to the Bible? And it's like, well, gosh, I want to I flood them with biblical verses, right? Sure and I, and sure I didn't even get to the ways in which they look, you know, Native Americans look to validate or celebrate um, what they do in rituals, right? So, you know, like smudging, like putting incense over you, right? There's a number of evangelical churches that have said, oh, man, we can't do smudging. This is, this is heresy. This is paganism, right? But like Casey Church is like, go to Exodus. Look, there's incense by the ark, right? They burn herbs mm-hmm. and uh, uh, sweet-smelling things over the ark of the covenant. And, and it's funny, you look at the history of tradition over how ancient Jews even thought about, well, what's the purpose of incense, right? Like, it, it sounds a lot like how Native Americans have tried to understand what incense is doing, right? There is a targum of the Song of Songs that says that incense by the altar was meant to ward away demons and, mm. you know, negative energy. And that's how, you know, some Native Americans talk about what sage does. So, these forms have a lot of resonance between the Hebrew Bible and what Native Americans are doing. Right. 
I just think this is all just wonderful and, and deeply enriching. Yeah. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for jumping on and, yeah. uh, and we'll say, Yokoke. Yeah, Yokoke. Thank you. Auf Wiedersehen in German, I guess. Excuse me. Get that out. Get that mess out of here. Hey, hey, the Germans are a gentle people. We almost (laughs) conquered the world twice. I mean... Pete, you know what? Uh, I I identify as mixed settler and indigenous. My Native American grandfather went to World War II and met a lovely German woman who would be my oma. And so I, I am there with you. You have an Oma. That's nice. I okay. have an Oma, right. and my Native American grandfather was Opa. Oh, wow. So. Okay. That's cool. All right. All right. Well, yeah. So um, before we get. <laughs> Gosh, I, I hope I hope this was helpful. This might be edited out, man. I have no, oh, no. Those is <laughs> no, going no, in there. Crazy. This is going in there. No, no, no. <laughs> you, and, uh, the part where part where Pete likes you when you start talking about being German. <laughs> that's that's going to stay in. That's, that's not problematic at all. No, not at all. That's that's just fine. <laughs> I've listened to the thing you said, Chris, for the last hour. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, thank you so much, Chris, for jumping on. It really was a treat. Yeah, I hope so. I hope this is helpful. Well, that's it for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before you go, we want to give a huge shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Tracy Roberts, Matthew Henry, Allison Knoll, Jeff Heilman, Jason and Lisa Kerrigan, Greg Jones, Rich Spini, Jonathan Lee, Hannah Paxton, and Jeff Bills. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review or just tell others about our show. You can also head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Maybe we can put that in as like penultimate, like before we say goodbye and and edit it so that then we say goodbye and then we're done. Right, right. That's that a good sense? idea. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Don't screw it up, Dave. <laughs> You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.